We are on the fifth of the Reformation solas this morning, Soli Deo Gloria, or God's glory alone. This is sort of the culmination, the appropriate culmination, or, or perhaps the point of origin for all of the solas, that is, those things that are singularly important that were recovered in the Reformation period, that had to do both with our salvation, but also with the God who gives us our salvation. And just as an introduction, I want to start with a passage out of 1 Kings 10. <clears throat> you remember uh, David's son Solomon takes the kingdom over after his demise, and it's under Solomon that Israel rises to its greatest height. So geographically, they occupy the most land. Solomon is known far and wide for his exceptional wisdom. No one wiser than Solomon in all the history of the earth, save one. Uh, the wealth of Jerusalem and Solomon's kingdom was legendary even in his own day. And so you can imagine <clears throat> something sounds too good to be true, phenomenal, words getting out, his reputation's getting out, how much is myth, how much is reality, people wanted to know. And one of those persons was a queen from down in the south of Sheba, whether that's North Africa or South Saudi Peninsula, not quite sure. In any case, this is the story. Uh, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord... She came to test him with hard questions. She does not believe the stories, so she's come to test him very specifically. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold, precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. Now, this sounds like she's unloading. She's questioning him. She's putting all the tests she can think of out to him. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And it's an interesting phrase. Sometimes in the Old Testament it'll say something like, their heart went out of them. And here the text is, her breath went out of her. And what this means is, have you ever been in an argument and you realize you're defeated? And so you kind of sigh. That's what she did. So she's come with all her tests. She doesn't believe the stories. She puts all the tests she can think of to Solomon. And finally she acknowledges defeat. He's everything I heard and more. So she said to the king... The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I didn't believe the reports. Heard it, didn't believe it, too good to be true. Until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. And listen to her assessment of the folks around Solomon. Happy are your men, the people who get to be in your court around you, they are blessed. They're happy. Happy are your servants, the folks who just get to be there serving you. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, this is God's covenant name. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So God delights in you. He has made you king over Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. God's love for Solomon and God's love for his own people 
where the reason that he blessed Israel was such a magnificent king. It says, Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Now notice, you know today if a dignitary visits another dignitary, they give their gift at the beginning. They meet them and they give their gift. She didn't. She held it back. It was kind of like she wanted to test the waters and see, is this guy really legit? Well, he was, and it's only then that she gave him all the wealth that she had brought. So on the front end, when we're talking about God's glory alone, the image of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon is that I've heard some things. I don't believe them. I'm willing to investigate. And on investigating, I see that the claims are better than I heard. And to be in the presence of this king with his wisdom and his wealth and all the blessings God has put around him, I finally see it, I get it, and I give him all the wealth I have. And that's a pretty good picture of what God calls us to do in Christ to see the blessing there is to be had in him and out of that be willing to give him all the glory that's due him, all the wealth of our lives that we have to give and to bring. Now, we're going to kind of go into the pit here a little bit because in each of these solas, we've tried to give a context for the conditions of the world when these solas, these biblical truths, were recovered in the period of the Reformation. And so, related to the glory of God alone, that is a a lifestyle, a motive, a decision to live for the glory of God, it came out of sort of a cesspool of church life and church history. So, During the Reformation period, popes and cardinals lived like kings and they consumed off the backs of the peasants and the merchants these fine lifestyles at the expense of everyone else around them they were ostensibly called to serve. Indulgences, we've talked about these a little bit. They were sold like junk bonds. There's no real value in them, but it's a way to raise money. It wasn't the glory of God that was being pursued, but the comforts of the clergy and the glory of men. I want to read you a little bit about a trip that Martin Luther took in 1510. So you remember the Reformation, the 95 Theses are 1517. This is seven years earlier. He, he has not come to the conclusions yet that we remember the Reformation for. But he's going with another monk. They're on the order of the Augustinians. They're going down to Rome on business. And so they're traveling from monastery to monastery down through Europe. And this is the recording of a part of his trip says, Luther was bothered by the luxurious living, the loose morals, and the lack of interest in spiritual things. He's not talking about people in the land among the monks they visited while traveling to Rome. Nevertheless, Luther still had held high expectations for Rome itself. When the papal capital first came into view, he shouted, Hail, holy Rome! as ecstatically as a Jewish pilgrim catching his first glimpse of Jerusalem. The city, however, which he had greeted as holy, was in fact a sink of iniquity. Its very priests were openly unfaithful, scoffed at the services they performed. The papal courtiers were men of the most shameless lives. He was accustomed to repeat the Italian proverb, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. Remember, this is a Roman Catholic who had no, no thought at this time in his life of dividing from Rome. He's not thinking about this is the wrong place, the wrong group. There's no thought of... That's his, the inside assessment of Luther seven years before the official anniversary of the Reformation. Pope Leo X led an incredibly lavish 
lifestyle. He was known for parties and plays and artworks. He spent abundantly. And in order to get the wealth to do that, to live that way, he sold not only indulgences, but he also sold positions in the church. And guys, there was a ton of money to be made in the Roman Catholic Church, in the clergy, in those positions that the Pope could award. There was tremendous amounts of money to be made. And I want to say this too before I forget. Um, we look at the context of the Reformation, and so I said this last week during Sunday school, so we continue to highlight Roman Catholic errors, right? And that's appropriate, and it's historically accurate, and it's the stream out of which we have come as Protestants, broadly as Protestants. But guys, a lot of what was going on then is going on now, and not just in Roman Catholicism, but in Protestantism. So if you look at preachers of the health and wealth gospel today, they're raking in tens of millions of dollars on the backs of donors who are hoping for a little bit of help. So this thing about making money off God and God's Word, this was not related solely to the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation. It goes on today under the broad banner of Protestantism as well. So Martin Luther came to conclude this. He said, The church of Rome has become the most lawless den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the very kingdom of sin, death, and hell, so that not even Antichrist, if he were to come, could devise any addition to its wickedness. That's a monk's take on his church. Luther went to Rome expecting to find the new Jerusalem, but said he found Babylon the Great instead. Now, related to the money and indulgences, I just want to touch on this for a second. We've talked about Johann Tetzel, who was selling indulgences in Martin Luther's backyard in Germany, and everyone's aware that a lot of the money from that was going to build St. Peter's Basilica. But the other half of Tetzel's income was going to pay off the Archbishop of Mainz' debt. So think of it this way. If you're the Pope, you can make a lot of money by selling positions in the church. And so this guy who wanted to be the archbishop, he said, I will pay you, Leo X, this much money for that archbishop position. Pope says, fine, give me the dough. He doesn't have it, so what does he do? He takes out a business loan to open his franchise, as it were. So he's got a business loan to pay off. So half of the indulgences from Tetzel were actually going to pay off the business loan he'd already taken out to pay uh, to pay the Pope, essentially all the funds went to the Pope, but one went through the back door through the business loan. But once those monies were paid off, guys, there was tremendous amounts of money to be made through those churches, and that's what was going on. That's what Luther was seeing. I'd mention this too. I've mentioned uh, health and wealth guys today profiteering off Christ's name. Uh, there's a book you can check out in our library called Merchants in the Temple, subtitled Inside Pope Francis' Secret Battle Against the Corruption in the Vatican. It's written by Nuzi Gianluigi. He's an Italian reporter. And basically he says this, Pope Francis came into Rome and saw what a cesspool of greed it remains today. So he tried to, to bring corrections to that. There's a thing called Peter's Purse. It's donations from the Roman Catholic Church around the world. They go to the Pope. They go to Rome to be used ostensibly for the support of of the church and also for the support of those in poverty. Well, basically what's happening with all those monies is the clerics in Rome are living like kings today, just like they did 500 years ago. And Francis has come in and wants to correct it. And what he's found is this, the, the book argues, 
It's so rife, it's so entrenched, it's so deep, it's so wide, he can't do anything about it. So some of the same things going on 500 years ago are going on today inside the Roman Catholic Church and certainly in Protestantism as well. So the church in the days of the Reformation looked more like a ruthless and lucrative business than a place in the people putting God, God's things, and God's glory first. So again, think of Luther or the other Reformers. The more you become aware of the dynamics of the church you've called home, the more aware you are that this isn't about God. It's not about Christ. It's not about faith. It's not about God's glory. It's all about us and what we can get out of this. So it's out of that corruption the Reformers not only recovered the gospel, and this is key, the key motivation for all of life, which is living to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. That's the call for you and I and our lives today. Now, the Reformation was not a singular event. It was a process. It went on for a long period of time. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism that was written 100 years after Luther, 1646, if you've never read the Catechism, you may have yet heard this question and answer. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That Why are we here? Why did God create man, mankind, men and women, people in His image? Because we were meant always to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. As we'll talk about a little bit later, those are not mutually exclusive. John Piper defines God's glory this way, and I think this is as as good and succinct a definition as we've got. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. So God's perfect, and everything He does is perfect. Everything He does represents elements of His character and His nature. He puts them on display. And so God's glory is, if you will, sort of synthetically, it's the culmination of who He is and what He's done. And that everything he does, because he is perfect, everything he does is perfect. So God's glory is his perfections put on display. So if you and I live to the glory of God, it has to include something like these three points. We declare those things that are true of God. We say what is true of God as believers. So when we worship We're singing, but we're singing words that are meant to glorify God, that speak the truth about who God is, what He's like, and what He's done. So with our words, we glorify God. We declare what's true of Him. We act in accordance with God's own perfections. Sin is wrong because it's something against God's own nature or character or will. That's why it's wrong. So we act to God's glory. It's what we do. What we do, where we go, where we don't go. It's bottom line, it's a motivation to please or glorify God because we see who He is and His perfections. And this goes back to Solomon and Sheba, the queen. It's only when she comes and sees Him as He is, it's only as she hears His wisdom and sees His glory that she's able to give him all the wealth she has to give. And so what we want to do as far as living to the glory of God, we need to know God's perfections or something of them. Or we're not motivated to live for his glory. He doesn't appear glorious enough to be worthy of everything we say and do and think if we don't know him for who and what he is. So living for the glory of God is why we were made originally Now, if you look in creation, 
From Colossians 1.16, when Paul's talking about Christ, he says this, By Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Why was the earth created? For Christ, for His glory. Why were you and I, why was humanity created? For Christ, for Christ's glory. Why were angels created for Christ and Christ's glory? So in Colossians 1, Paul lets us know the beginning and the end of all things is Christ, God, and His glory. Everything. Why were you and I made? We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now if you think about the creation account, you remember in Genesis 1.1, it's a summary statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, sort of a recapitulation, is describing from that original point of creation, he divides things, light from darkness, land from water, etc. He brings order, sort of out of that initial creative chaos, if we can call it that. And he orders the world, and he says everything's good. And then he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And remember, they bear his image, and they're made for his glory, and what are they going to do? They're going to see the perfection of the garden God set them in, And then he tells them, now you rule and subdue the world, the earth. You've seen the pattern, the perfection of the garden. Now you, like I have, you're going to go out into the world and as my sub-creators, you're going to bring order and additional beauty to the created world I gave. You're going to glorify me. You're going to do so in fellowship with me. You're like me and you're going to bring order onto the earth I've created. It's already good. It's good already. It's very good. You're going to improve it. You're going to make all the earth like the garden. So why were we created? We were created to glorify God. Now, as you know, that state of innocence apparently didn't last very long, right? Because our first parents, they hear the Satan, they hear the temptation, they say, we'll take this guy's version of life, God, not yours, and they fall. And that image is marred, and their ability to know God and therefore to glorify God is just hugely broken, this great chasm between us and God. And then we know, so we've got creation, we've got the fall, and we've got redemption, and we know that God sends a Savior. We know that on the authority of God's Word alone, this is a rehash, on the authority of God's Word alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're redeemed. And we're redeemed back into a relationship with God whereby we can fulfill our original purpose, but no longer as creatures, merely But as his children, we can now glorify God through redemption. So guys, whether you think of creation or redemption, our purpose for existence is to glorify God. Everything is meant to flow out of a desire, sort of a healthy knowledge, who God is, who we are, why we're here, and therefore we glorify God out of that. We're created to glorify God and we're redeemed to glorify God. I'll point out to Romans 11.36. If you read uh, Romans, you know it's a great theological treatise and you get creation in the fall in chapters 1, 2 and you get redemption in 3 and salvation by faith in 4 and 5 and you get Christian's life 6, 7 and 8. You get God's sovereignty, saving Jews and Gentiles 9, 10 and 11. And at the end of 11, Paul breaks out into that song of praise and he closes with, For from Him, from God, through Him, God, and to Him are all things. 
The summary is, to him be glory forever. So as Paul looks at the big picture, his conclusion is the same. It's to God alone be the glory. That our existence is all about God's glory. So created to glorify God, we're also redeemed to glorify God. There's a passage in Isaiah 43. You guys doing okay? Feels a little stuffy in here to me today. Isaiah 43, 7, uh, God was talking about a time in which He would call the Jews back to the land of promise. He'd call them back in redemption. And He says this. He says, Everyone who is called by My name, called back to Me in redemption, everyone who is called by My name, whom I created for My glory, whom I formed and made. Coming back, I've called them, they're Mine, they're redeemed, they come back, and I've created them, God says, without apology, for my glory. You see the same thing in the New Testament in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. By the way, you know, if you're talking to people who don't know Christ, sharing the gospel, and you talk about God's glory, um, living to the glory of God alone for a lot of people is a big deal. It's a big hurdle to get over because they think it makes God sound like He's small and needy. And so He needs you to live to make much of Him because He's inadequate on His own. It's like... That's absolutely backwards. We, uh, God makes much of us in redemption so that we can make much of Him, so that we can glorify Him. But Paul says this in Ephesians 1, in Christ we've obtained an inheritance, we're now co-heirs with Christ, we're God's heirs, children, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Paul says, we who have hoped in Christ have done so to the praise of God's own glory. That our redemption in Christ is still about God and God's glory. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, you know, the Corinthians were a lot like us. They were very carnal. They were very worldly. They were very shallow. They were believers. They were saved, but they hadn't made a lot of that yet. And they were still confused about... How do you glorify God in your body? Physically, sexually, what does that look like to glorify God as a human, a redeemed human with a body on the earth? One of their problems was sexual immorality. And so Paul says in the context of that in chapter 6, 19 and 20, he says, don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And the conclusion again is, so glorify God in your body. You know that the temple of God is no longer a stone building, that you're the temple of God, the Holy Spirit Himself lives inside you as an individual believer, lives corporately, inhabits the church of Christ as well. But Paul says because of that, because God's in you, you must glorify God in your body. It's why immorality is not an issue. Abuse of the body is not an issue. Why? Not because it's ours, because it's God's. It's God's temple now. So we glorify God in our body. He said also in chapter 10, and there's so much thinking to correct, you know, Jews and Gentiles were getting together, and this was unheard of before Christ and the gospel. They didn't. They stayed apart. And so all the questions arose, what do we do about this situation and that situation? Well, in chapter 10, it had to do with food. And if you're a new believer and you go to the market and you want to buy a piece of meat, you don't know where it came from. And was that, was that sacrifice to some god? And if it was, and I eat it, am I somehow contaminated? And So Paul's talking about these issues. 
But he concludes with this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He brings it right down to the most fundamental level. We eat every day. We drink every day. The context of the command was related to other people. Am I cursing or blessing others based on what I'm choosing to do? But more broadly, Paul just says, look, whatever it is you're doing, do all to the glory of God. That honoring God, saying what's true of Him, acting in accord of what's true of Him, motivated by a desire to please Him because of His perfections, that's supposed to be behind and a part of everything we do. Now, as believers, and actually I think Mike already for Sunday school read one of these passages. I can't remember if it was chapter 4 or 9 in Revelation. If you're a Christian and you think glorifying God sounds boring, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, but you're in trouble because your future is about being in God's presence, glorifying Him forever. So if you don't think that's a good notion now, you've got trouble ahead because that's your future forever. Never ends. Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And by the way, I take it that Revelation 4 is an image of God the Father. Revelation 5 is an image of Christ the Son as the Lamb of God. But he says there, John's in heaven. He's seen what's going on in heaven. And he says these living creatures that are around God's throne. says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, the angels, they, they have a, an ability to see God as He really is. And so they keep saying... He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's unbelievable. He's absolutely unique. I can't get over how unique and splendid he is. That's what they keep saying. Then the 24 elders fall down. I assume this represents both Israel and the church. They fall down before him who's seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns, which would be the symbol of their own honor and glory. They cast their crowns before the throne and they say... Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Excuse me. For because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The saints in heaven are worshiping God because He created all things. They're doing exactly what they were created to do. They're glorifying God in heaven. You get to chapter 5. And we see the Son represented here as a lamb that was slain but has now overcome. And we read this. John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. And many is, a, is an understatement. Numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. In my mind, see a sports arena, a coliseum, maybe it seats 100,000 and then make that ten times or a hundred times bigger. That's the scene here. They say with a loud voice. So the angels here are not singing, they're speaking. They're speaking with one voice. Can you imagine what that would be to be around that, to just hear a single voice from uncounted multitudes all saying at the same time the same thing, and what do they say? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb that was slain, they're praising God here for redemption. The angels who aren't redeemed are praising God, glorifying God for the redemption He brought about for you and me. I heard every creature now in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne, 
chapter 4, the Father, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what heaven's about. That's, if you're going to heaven, that's your future. If, if that's not where our hearts are at, now we've got some adjustments to make. Which is fine. We'll talk about that. So we're created for God's glory. We're redeemed for God's glory. This is the thing. Glorifying God isn't something or shouldn't be something that's strange to us. Glorifying God as a motive, as a way of life, as a, spe- a pattern of speech should feel like we're wearing clothes that are absolutely tailored for us. That we're in something, that we're doing something that we're absolutely made to do. Remember the old line from Eric Little who said, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. That's because he was doing what he was made to do. Well, when you and I honor and praise and glorify God, we are doing what we were created and redeemed to do. It's not something that should be odd or different. It's at the very nature of who and what we are now. So glorifying God is the best thing we can do for God and for ourselves. Your study sheet has these listed out, and we'll just walk through these uh, with as much time as I've got. Uh, these, the implications of being created and redeemed for God's glory, I've taken these from a blog written by Jesse Johnson. He's excerpted these from John Piper's book, God's Passion for His Glory. So listen to some of these. I probably won't get through all of them, but we'll get through what we can. God's passion for His own glory and His passion for my joy in Him are not at odds. God's glory doesn't cost you something. You're not paying for the pleasure of glorifying God. God's glory and your joy or pleasure or goodness, they're not at odds with each other. They are, in fact, complementary. They are intimately connected. So he follows up with, Therefore, God is as committed to my eternal and ever-increasing joy in Him as He is to His own glory. God's commitment to His own glory means He's committed to our joy. We'll flesh this out a little bit in just a second. Do you remember David said in Psalm 16, In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's your future as a redeemed believer in Christ. Joy and pleasures forevermore. So glorifying God doesn't cost us something. We don't become less. We become more when we fulfill that role God has given us to see Him as He is and therefore to give Him glory. It's the only appropriate response. If you see perfection, how can you not but give thanks and praise for it? So God's glory and our joy are in fact intimately tied together. He says, therefore, heaven will be a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever-greater joy in Him. That's good, isn't it? You remember uh, the hymn Amazing Grace? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've begun. There's no end to seeing God's glory and savoring it and enjoying it and therefore declaring His excellencies again. You remember in the book of Judges, if you read that book, it's a really depressing book in some ways because Israel enters into this cycle, this downward spiral. And it goes like this. They're blessed by God. They reject God. They turn to idolatry. God judges them. They call out. God sends a deliverer. And it all starts over. But what you find is it just keeps going down. 
so that by the end of the book of Judges, Israel is more corrupt than the nations around them. We'll take that spiral and now turn it upside down. Because in heaven, I think it's going to go something like this. And I think uh, Piper's spot on with this comment. In heaven, I think it goes like this. God displays some more of His glory, His perfections, right? Because God's not done. We'll be in a new heaven and new earth. But that doesn't mean God's work in that sense is done or our work is done in that sense. Scriptures don't tell us a whole lot about that because the main thing to know is we're with Christ and Christ is with us. My beloved is mine and I am my beloved's. That's the thing that counts. But God is going to display elements of His glory, His perfections that we haven't seen before. And so we're going to see them and we're going to go, wow, is that cool? And then we're going to praise and glorify God because of that. And then guess what? He's going to do it again. And then he'll do it again. And he's eternal. And he's omnipotent. And he's all wise. He's all good. So this thing just keeps going and going and going. And you and I will go from one stage of glory to another as God reveals more of his perfections and it won't end. And your capacity and mine will continue to see and savor God's perfections in that eternal day where there's no end. That's heaven. It's seeing God as He is and His glory is being multiplied through that time that never ends. That's heaven. That's our presence with Him forever. He says, and this is important, guys, especially for believers, this next point. He says, it follows then that sin, sin, I'm talking to us as followers of Christ now, sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. Uh, He's trading on an image there from Jeremiah 2. And if you remember there, God says, I'm a spring, I'm a fountain of life-giving water. But my people have turned from me, the fountain of life-giving water, and they've gone to draw water from a hole in the ground that's cracked. How much sense does this make? If you go back to the Reformation, the clergy, those who represented Christ, they're making much of the stuff they've got. Holes in the ground. Stuff that tarnishes and fades and will ultimately burn up. And many of us do that today. When we trade God for some sin, we don't get more life, we get less. We don't get more joy, we get less. We get sorrow. So he says sin, it's like suicide. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Here's life and you choose death. What's going on? This is an appropriate word for believers. He says, the love of God for sinners is not His making much of them, but His graciously freeing and empowering them to enjoy making much of Him. That we're at our best, the more we see of God and His perfections, the better it is for us. I'm going to briefly hurry through these last few. Uh, Evangelism, he says, should be depicting the glories of God to those around us. Uh, the, The gospel, God uses the gospel with its own power to save. But part of us sharing the gospel is Christians are ten- tempted to be embarrassed. What you're sharing with other people is the hope of glory. It's, do you know how good your life could be? Do you know how great God is? And He's inviting you into this joy-giving, pleasurable relationship with Him. Wouldn't you rather trade your old clothes and your old way of life for something much better? Evangelism. He says, hell is unspeakably real. And he mentions that hell displays the perfection of God's judgment. 
You read about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. God's kindness is displayed in us, the redeemed. The perfection of God's judgment is reflected on those who reject Christ. Hell is real. He concludes with this. If the exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing, and that's his argument, and I believe that's true, then as C.S. Lewis said, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. And all Lewis means there is, the more we see God as He is, the happier we are. The more in tune with God's perfections we are, the more joy, the more peace we experience. It's not a loss, it's always a gain. Now, if talking about living to God's glory sounds like a burden to be born, if it's like, oh no, I've got to glorify God, that's hard, or how do I do that, or I've got to one thing or another. I, I have two, two conclusions, two possible conclusions. You might develop more, but I think these are the two key ones. The first is this. If I think glorifying God is, is in any way distasteful or onerous, then it may be that I'm simply still unsaved. And I, I think glorifying God's not a good thing because I'm still working very hard at glorifying myself. I'm still a rebel to God and God's cause and God's glory, and so glorifying God isn't something that delights me. And if that's us, then we need to repent of our waywardness and our rebellion and say, God, thanks for Christ's salvation. I embrace that in the arms of faith. Make me your son or your daughter today. And we can get on with the business of knowing God as he is and glorifying him. I think for most of us, though, the second is true. We don't adequately know God and Christ, and that's why glorifying God isn't more front and center for most of us. And that comes back to the Queen of Sheba. See, the thing really is, if I know God as He is, if I see His perfections as a believer, my response will be to praise and glorify Him, just as it is the language of heaven today. So probably for most of us, the problem is we don't know God as we should. We've heard about Him. We're adopted. We have His Spirit. But like the Queen of Sheba, we still have these areas of unbelief and of doubt, of an incredulity that worshiping and knowing God in that way, giving Him all that we are and have in life, because we don't know Him as we need to. If we see Him in His splendor, as He really is, then making it our goal to glorify Him in everything we do, it becomes a given. It's like the language of heaven. There's a poem by William Wordsworth called The World is Too Much With Us. Listen to just four lines from this. He's comparing in his day sort of the, the energy of life being consumption mentality like we have today, only multiplied more so. He talks about getting and, and buying. And in the doing, he says, we lose the ability to savor the perfections of nature. Now, what he's arguing for nature is true of us, for God and of Christ. Listen to this. He says, the world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, our powers to see and to savor. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, he concludes, a sordid boon. And what he's saying is this, we've spent all our ability to see and to savor on trinkets instead of treasures. And so we got something for it, a boon, which, is, which means a good, but it's a lousy good. It's a deficient good. 
I have treasures to get, and I'm settling for trinkets. And that's what most of us as believers are doing today. God has treasures for us. We're settling for trinkets. Do I have that? uh, This is what we need. If glorifying God isn't front and center of our life, we need to get to know Him better. Do you remember what he said to the, the Laodicean church? He said, you guys got all the stuff and you got nothing. That's us, right? That's the church in the way. You got all the trinkets, you got the buildings, you got the wealth, you got the health and wealth, whatever it is that you can lay your hands on. You got the stuff. But Jesus says, but really, you don't have the stuff. You're poor, wretched, blind, and miserable. And what does he say? I'm at the door and I'm knocking. And if you want, you can open the door. And we'll sit down, we'll, we'll dine together, we'll fellowship together. That's us coming to, to grip with the realities of his perfection. What do we want to do? We want to open the door. We want to sit down and have fellowship with our Savior because we'll see him as he is and glorifying him will become the output of our life. It'll be the only thing that makes sense. But you've got to know him. How do we know him? This group knows one of the answers. We meditate in God's word. We read our Bibles. God reveals himself through his word. He makes us holy by his word. He reveals himself through his word. We've got to be meditating in the scriptures. We've got to be worshiping together as we are here this morning. You cannot grow in the faith and in the ability to see and savor God and therefore glorify him on your own. You know, there's a mentality in our day that you can be a lone ranger Christian, that you can make it on your own. Absolute folly. You can never get that out of the Bible. We, we are members of the body of Christ. Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You can't get there on your own. We need each other. That's part of God revealing himself to us. We pray the spiritual disciplines, if you will, the normal Christian life. That's what we're called to. We apply ourselves to those things. God reveals more and more of himself to us. We're able to glorify him more and more. And because of that, guys, we get more and more joy and peace. We don't lose, we gain. God gets the glory and we're blessed because he does. So we've been talking about the authority of God in His Word alone, God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone saves us, and all of that comes together so that you and I can give God all the glory. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, You are worthy of all that we are and have. God, help us to see the deficient ways in which we've traded life-giving water for sewers in which we've traded away treasure for trinkets. Would you help us to come into your presence to see and savor your perfections to make much of you in Jesus' name. Amen.